I'm Paddy Miles, an Irish lad just from across the sea. For singing or for dancing, I think I can please ye. I'll sing or dance with any man as I've done in days of your Welcome to the sixth and final episode in the Carrie Grover Project podcast series, where I tell the story of Carrie Spinney Grover's musical life and her efforts to preserve her family collection of folk songs, ballads, seafaring, battle, and broken token songs. I am Julie Mainstone Savas, the creator of this project, the one lucky enough to have stumbled upon her songbook, A Heritage of Songs, which led me down a long rabbit hole of unearthing the spinny-long family songs and stories. You can listen to all the podcasts and download sheet music to most of their songs for free on my website, www.carriegroverproject.com. I'm going back to Paddy's land to a place called Ballymore. And I'll cut a quite a cipher with a hat me daddy wore. Let me set the stage with a little bit of background on the state of affairs in Nova Scotia in the mid to late 19th century. In the mid-1800s, Nova Scotia boasted the third largest merchant marine fleet in the entire world, outranked only by France and England, whose fleets were built solely from the seemingly never-ending timber supply whacked from the great forests of Nova Scotia. Times were good. Every river and stream in the province had a sawmill on it, including the one owned by George Spinney, Carrie's father. But things quickly changed when the steamship replaced the wooden sailing ships. The shipyards fell silent, the need for sawmills decreased, putting Nova Scotian men out of work, and they began leaving the province in droves for the notorious lumber camps of the northeast, or farther afield as the west began opening up to settlers. In 1887, an economic depression exacerbated Canada's already hard-hit economy. George Spinney and his eldest sons, Anson and Lewis, went to work in lumber camps in Maine and Massachusetts, returning home every few months or so to tend their farms and see their families. Another son, Jim, soon followed. Later, George worked mostly near Gorham, Maine, where his brother, John Davis Spinney, had settled 40 years earlier. The first song I want to share with you is Cutting Down the Pines. Carrie sings three verses. Oh, the lumberman's life is a wearisome life, though some call it free from all care, with the ringing of the axes from morning until night in the middle of a forest so drear. Transported we are from the haunts of all men. All pleasures we must leave far behind. There is nobody here for to wipe away a tear when sorrow fills the deeply troubled mind. When springtime comes in, double trouble does begin. When the water it is piercingly cold, Dripping wet are our clothes, and our limbs are almost froze, and our peavies we can scarcely hold. Over rock shoals and sands, there's employment for all hands, as our well-banded raft we do steer, and the rapids that we run, we count it not but fun. For a lumberman's life is devoid of all fear. In 1888, the family dynamic was changing. Lewis married Annie Ward, 
and when their first child was born, they moved back to the family home at Sunken Lake for a short while before permanently relocating to Lisbon, Maine, where Lewis worked in a paper mill. That same year, 1888, Jim bought a house in Wooded Lot in New Remain and married Marion Ramsey and continued laboring in the lumber camps. Meanwhile, back in Nova Scotia, the older sisters, Margaret and Sarah, worked in Port Williams, a town about 20 miles north. Sarah earned $3 a month cleaning houses, and Margaret worked at an inn near Acadia College. Even Bertha was working outside the home by the time she was 15, tending a widower's children in Port Williams. Carrie was 12 years old in the year 1892. Her parents were buckling under the strain of increasing debt. A local man, who also owned a sawmill nearby, secretly coveted George's mill site. He bought up George's bad bills and gained ownership of the mill. The story that was passed down in the family came through his granddaughter 50 years later, who wrote, Through jealousy and deceit of a neighbor, Granddaddy lost his mill, house, and stock. With no other alternative, George and Eliza made plans to relocate to Maine. George was 53 at the time and Eliza 49. George went on ahead to Newry in the summer of 1892 to help their son build a home for his young family on the wooded lot he'd purchased. George's family would live there with them until they got settled elsewhere. Eliza and the youngest of the children remained in their home at Sunken Lake all through the summer and into fall. One hot summer day, Carrie traveled with her neighbor, Jim Irvine, to Port Williams, the largest town she had ever seen in her life, and the very first time in her life she journeys so far beyond Sunken Lake. It's not a stretch to attribute isolation and insulation from a broader world as a strong factor in the preservation of their music. Without any competing influences from other musical genres, the song sank in deeper with each generation. Carrie wrote... The night before our departure, neighbors, relatives, and friends gathered at our house to say goodbye. Of course, to Joe and I, there was pleasure and excitement enough mixed in with the sadness so that we almost forgot that in all probability, we'd never meet these good, kind friends again. They stayed for a long time, and the time was spent in talking and singing together. Mother was asked to sing Adieu to Aaron, but before she finished it, her voice broke and she had to leave the room. I never heard her sing it again. While there is no recording of Carrie singing this song, a similar farewell song does exist. Fare thee well and adieu. Fare you well and adieu, bright Spanish maidens. Fare you well and adieu, you bright maidens of Spain. For I am bound away from the channel of old England. I'll be back in the spring, pray don't let it grieve thee. My tarry trousers and tarpaulin jacket I will lay aside forevermore and return again to that blooming fair one that I left alone on old England shore. The morning after the gathering, Carrie boarded a train to Kingston with siblings Joe and Bertha and her mother and stayed one night with Anson and his family. The following day, they left by boat out of Yarmouth to St. John's, New Brunswick, where they caught a second boat to Portland, Maine. From Portland, they went by train and arrived at last in Bethel, Maine on November 1, 1892. 
George met them at the station with horse and cart and galloped his wife and children to the small township of Newry, population 320. The Spinney family settled into Jim's large house with his wife and young children. In an old blurry photo, they're all seated in front of the house, Jim and his family and George and Eliza with their three youngest, Bertha, Joseph, and Carrie. Only George is identifiable with his hunched shoulders and straw hat standing behind them. The house itself is no longer standing, but the current property owner pointed out the long rectangular imprint in the grass where its rock foundation had left its mark. When Jim owned it, a long pasture stretched beyond the house to the banks of the Sunday River, where it ran beneath a covered bridge known as the Artist's Bridge. There is scant evidence of the Spinney family at this point in time. Carrie does not write of this period of her life in any of the letters or bits and pieces I've found. I know from archived newspapers their first spring in Newry was a wet one, with muddy roads that impeded travel, and that they were impressed with Miss Powers, the new teacher. Every now and then I caught a whiff of their scent. In a newspaper article dated February 17, 1893, I read, George Spinney and his two sons are getting a hundred cords of birch wood from the J.A. Thurston Mill. Herbert Kendall will haul forty of them. Herbert Kendall married Sarah Spinney, one of Carey's sisters. In historical books of Newry, written by local women, there are references to the locals drinking pints at Poplar Tavern, and I think maybe George and his sons and neighbors may have bellied up to that bar. Only black and white photos exist of those places now. They've fallen into the earth. The Newry Community Hall occasionally held concerts. Carrie and her father were in the audience when a formerly enslaved man and his wife and their two daughters performed a series of dances. Carrie wrote, One of the dances was the Juba dance, which I had often heard father describe. He would jump into the air, whirl around two or three times, never ceasing the incessant clapping of his hands on the legs of his leather trousers, keeping perfect time to the music and never missing a beat. That dance is the only part I remember of the whole entertainment. It's actually called Patting the Juba. George had seen it once before in Virginia and had described it to his family years before when they were still in Nova Scotia. Carrie often mentioned what a fine singer her brother Jim was, and while their mother would say some of those songs contained a thread of gray and were not befitting for young women to sing, Jim was sought after in the lumber camps for his fine voice and wide repertoire. One of his songs was Gary's Rocks, a true event of six loggers attempting to break up a log jam in a Canadian river. Gary's Rocks. Come all you brave young shanty boys, I pray you lend an ear to a melancholy story which you shall quickly hear. Tis of six brave Canadian boys with hearts both stout and brave. Who broke the jam on Gary's rocks and met a watery grave? Twas on the Sunday morning, as you shall quickly hear. The logs were running mountains high, we could not keep them clear. The boss cries out, turn out my boys with neither dread nor fear. To break the jam on Gary's rocks, for Ayers town to steer. Some of the boys were willing, while others they hung back. They thought it wrong on a Sunday morn to clear away the track. 
At length six brave Canadian boys did volunteer to go to break the jam on Gary's rocks with their foreman, young Monroe. They had not rolled off many logs till the boss to them did say, I would have you on your guard, my boys, for the jam will soon give way. He scarce had spoke those warning words when crash the jam did go, and it carried off those six brave youths with their foreman, young Monroe. When the rest of our brave shanty boys these tidings they did hear, to search for their brave comrades to the river they did steer. At length one lifeless body, much to their grief and woe, all dead and mangled on the beach lay the head of young Monroe. They picked him up quite tenderly, smoothed down his curling hair. A fair one came with flowing tears whose cries would rend the air. There was one fair form among them, a girl from Saginaw town, whose moans and cries would rend the skies when she saw her true love drowned. Clara's mother was a widow who lived by the river bend. And Clara was a noble girl, a brave, true-hearted friend. The wages of her own true love the boss to her did pay. A liberal subscription she received from the shanty boys next day. She sank beneath the horrid shock, a prey to bitter grief. In less than six months after death came to her relief. In less than six months after this fair maid was called to go, and her last request was granted to be laid by young Monroe. She sank beneath the horrid shock, a prey to bitter grief. In less than six months after death came to her relief, in less than six months after this fair maid was called to go, and her last request was granted to be laid by young Monroe. Come all your brave young shanty boys who wish to go and see that little mound by the river's side where grows the hemlock tree. The shanty boys cleared off the trees and the lovers they laid low. Here lies young Clara Dennison and her true love, young Monroe. On a bright August afternoon in 2015, I walked the road from Jim's house to the old schoolhouse Carrie had attended while still in primary school. The schoolhouse had been rebuilt in 1896, a great improvement over the dismal-looking structure Carrie had attended in 1892 to 1895. With a pitched roof and a bell tower, it was downright cute. I discovered the door miraculously unlocked that day. I entered in cautiously and poked about the bookshelves and examined the initials carved in the wooden desktops by former students. It felt as though class had just dismissed for the afternoon— 
Everything appeared intact. The globe, the chalkboard, the light streaming in through tall windows. In the fall of 1895, Carrie was enrolled at Gould High School, the only high school for miles around and located in Bethel, a fair enough distance from Newry to require her to board with a family in town. Carrie was the only member of her family to attend high school, but she did not graduate. In the fall of her senior year, 1896, at the age of 17, she married Almond Roy Grover in a Methodist church in Bethel. Four years later, the 1900 census shows Carrie and Almond living in Halifax, Massachusetts, with two daughters, Gertrude, age two, and Ethel, not quite a year. A son, Anson Roy, would soon follow. Forty years later, Carrie returned to Gould Academy, not as a student, of course, but to have her songs transcribed by the music teacher there. I learned of Gould Academy through Carrie's introduction to A Heritage of Songs, and this marked my starting point, my one and only lead, when I initially began to search for Carrie Grover and her music. A helpful woman at the alumni office led me to Carrie's granddaughter, Callie, who was still living in Bethel. She, in turn, introduced me to her cousin, Roy Grover, Carrie's grandson, whom I visited several times at his home in Schenectady, New York, coincidentally not far from my hometown on Lake Ontario. These two grandchildren have been so helpful to me. On my first visit with Roy, we were both surprised that we held different editions of Carrie's songbook. His was spiral-bound, one of the original copies that circulated within the family. Mine was a reproduced copy published in 1972 by Norwood Publications. The next time I saw him, he gave me his grandmother's small notebook filled with notation, melody lines, to over 60 songs, and each with just a single verse. I often wondered about this strange, tattered booklet, like she was keeping a scrapbook of songs she knew. On my first visit to Bethel in the spring of 2013, I met Carrie's granddaughter, Callie Colby. I knew by her clear blue eyes she was the great-granddaughter of George Spinney. We visited together for a while, then Callie suggested we drive out to the small township of Mason, down Grover Hill to Flat Road, where Carrie, her husband Alman, and their three young children had lived in the first decade of the 1900s, less than a mile from her sister Bertha, who had married a German man named Fred Munt. So off we went down Grover Hill, winding through woods, and when we spotted a cute little cemetery, Mason Cemetery, we decided to stop and poke around the headstones before venturing any further. Such are the makings of serendipity because the moment I stepped from the car, a big four-by-four truck pulled up behind us and a spry elderly woman hopped out, came straight up to me and asked if we would be attending the funeral for her sister the following day. I told her I was looking for the Spinney family, and she pointed me in the direction where I found them. Eliza, George, Bertha, and Bertha's husband and children, all in a row, their bones beneath my feet. I pressed my hand against Eliza's headstone and sang, Prentice Boy the song she'd wanted Carrie to always remember. It turned out this elderly woman was a grover, Ina, 92 years old and sharp as a tack, and she had known Carrie very well. I showed her a picture of Carrie standing in front of a log home, wearing a dark dress with a lace collar, proudly holding her fiddle. It had been taken at Carrie and Allman's 50th wedding anniversary, and Ina recognized it right away and said she'd attended that party. Carrie had played the fiddle while her sister Bertha danced a jig, she said. Ina had been a close friend of Carrie's daughter Ethel and said, 
She was just about the sweetest friend I ever had. Both Carrie and Allman had visited Ina at her home, and she remembered them playing their fiddles together. We did make it down to Flat Road that day. The schoolhouse her kids had attended is gone now, and the house has long since been reclaimed by the soil. I had an old map showing where that house would have stood in this expansive meadow in 1910, when Carrie was in her 30s, and photos helped me imagine Carrie's daughters standing where the schoolhouse steps would have been, and Eliza standing at the gate of her garden alongside Bertha's home. A fire caused by a kerosene lamp destroyed Carrie and Almond's home on Flat Road in 1910. It must have been devastating for them. But Carrie's cousin, Reuben Spinney, a bachelor living 80 miles south in Gorham, asked her if she would bring her family to live with him and keep house for him. In return, he would see to the three children being educated, and upon his death, the home would become hers. It was a generous offer, and Carrie and Allman agreed, and made the move to this house that had belonged to Reuben's father, John Davis Spinney, George's oldest brother. It was to this very house where George stayed when he had come to Maine to work in the mid-1880s. The house had a barn and a blacksmith shop, and a long garden where a photo shows Reuben pushing a plow. Carrie and Allman lived here for most of the rest of their lives. I have a picture of Carrie standing beside a rosebush near the steps to her door. Her mother gave each of her children a cutting from the rosebush brought from England from George's grandmother. An article and a picture of Carrie appeared in the Bethel newspaper telling the story. It was to this house, too, where their grandson Roy, my friend in Schenectady, who supplied invaluable details and countless hours to this project, spent many happy summers as a child. George and Eliza celebrated their golden wedding anniversary on October 24, 1912. A newspaper article in the Bethel Historical Society's Spidell Reading Room detailed the festivities of the anniversary party, saying it took place at their home, and all their guests, children, grandchildren, cousins, friends, and neighbors, were mentioned by name. After supper, the music and dancing began. Bertha recited an original poem she'd penned for the event, and different family members played fiddle, organ, and accordion. On the night of his golden anniversary, George danced what he called the double backstep to Anson's fiddle and told his guests that if they failed to enjoy themselves at his golden wedding, they wouldn't be invited to his diamond wedding. And he sang one of his favorite songs, I Bridled My Nag. It was the very last time Carrie heard her father sing. Just a few years later, in 1916, at the age of 79, George Kraft Spinney died. The patriarch the leader of the band, the hard-working, pipe-smoking, seafaring, big-hearted man whom they all adored, was gone. He was all those things, including the seed of inspiration planted in Carrie's mind when she overheard him say to her mother shortly before his passing, Lisa, when we die, our songs will die with us. No one sings them anymore. That remark stopped Carrie in her tracks. All those songs they knew— their obvious decline as fewer sang them, and those who had were passing away. It's true, the songs were not being sung. But Carrie sang them, and her children knew a good many of the old songs and sang them with her. But her father's words sat like a stone in her heart, and though she did write down a few of the old songs, 
It would be years before she fully immersed herself in getting down every last song she could remember ever hearing sung in her family. Had she begun right then, she said time and time again, she could have gotten them all. In an old box at Callie's house, we found notes, letters, photographs, and two diaries kept by Callie's mother, Ethel, dated 1915, when Ethel was 15 years old. They are filled mostly with daily life attending school and choir practice, shoveling snow, spats with her sister, and comments about her mother's comings and goings. It is priceless to see Carrie through the eyes of her daughter. Through these diaries, we know Carrie was studying the violin more seriously and traveling by train to Portland for weekly lessons with a music teacher, as well as composer Fred Hill. She learned to read music during this time, a skill that would prove highly beneficial to her in the coming years. Mr. Hill, as he is referred to in Ethel's diaries, was a frequent guest in their home. The two shared a great love of music and remained close friends for more than four decades. There's a picture of Carrie taken around this time. She's playing a jig in an upstairs bedroom with patterned wallpaper, bent over the music, practicing away, her hair swept up in a bun on top of her head. I love that she was captured in this moment, intent on becoming a violinist. The census of 1930 shows Carrie and her husband living in Cumberland, Maine, where Almond worked at S.D. Warren Paper Mill, a mill that employed thousands of people. Eliza Spinney passed away quietly in 1929, as did Carrie's cousin Reuben, and as promised, ownership of the home passed to Carrie. It was her mother's passing that marked Carrie's commitment and determination to preserving the music, and she began in earnest sometime in the 1930s when she was about 50 years old. On a Tuesday morning in December of 1940, Carrie was listening in to a folk music program broadcast from radio station WGAN in Portland, Maine. The program was Wellsprings of Music, and it was hosted by Ellen Lomax, ethnomusicologist and song collector at the Library of Congress. Carrie was mesmerized by the program and afterwards sat down to write a letter to this Mr. Ellen Lomax. She wrote how interested she was in the subject of old songs, and that for the past few years, she has been collecting the old songs her family and friends used to sing, and that she's compiling a book, and is including stories and incidents connected with her family. The way I happen to know so many songs, she wrote, is because my family on both sides sang old songs as far back as I knew anything about them. She mentions a book she's borrowed from a woman in town, a book of songs collected from Nova Scotia. She knew many of the songs in that book, but only one of them had the tune she knew. She wrote, I have the same tunes to my songs that have been handed down from the older ones, and though they are very queer, some of them, they seem to fit the songs. Those old tunes sung by the old-timers would send cold shivers dancing up and down my spine when I was a little girl. She mentioned she had plans to visit an east in Washington, D.C. in the spring, and wrote, I have heard that they have old, old songs in the Library of Congress. Could a common mortal get a chance to look at them? She wants to see some more of the old songs and copy the lyrics, if those lyrics are as her people sang. She remembers all the catchy tunes to so many songs, but not the words. Finally, in this first letter, she referred to his December 10th broadcast in the song Blow Ye Winds in the Morning and offered a verse from her family's version. Oh, he drew out his penknife and run it in his sleeve. 
Lomax responded two weeks later on December 30th with the words, It is letters like yours that make work over the radio worthwhile. In fact, to a collector of old songs such as I am, letters like yours prove a great thrill. The things that you know sound very old and very much worth keeping. He seizes upon her wish to visit the Library of Congress and plants the seed for recording her in the spring and writes, Many of these old tunes are distorted when they are written down in musical notation, so we're recording all of them on phonograph discs. Next spring, when you come to visit our collection, we must have several days to record the songs you know. And with that, a year-long correspondence began between Carrie and Ellen Lomax. In her next letter, she tells him of her childhood, hearing her parents sing in the evening. One of father's favorites, she said, was Jolly Soldier, a version of which Lomax had coincidentally played on the previous week's broadcast. She spoke of the lumber camps and the description her brothers gave her of the singing that took place in those camps, and a song she knew entitled A Lumberman's Life. She said her people had a wonderful chance to hear many different songs, and they could carry a tune without dropping it. Combining that with Carrie's keen ability to recall those tunes— even though she'd heard only once or twice, resulted in a vast storehouse of tunes and songs. I hope a common, everyday person like myself might be able to give you a clear idea of the way my people learn so many songs, she wrote. But she's not sure she'll visit him at the library in Washington. The thought of singing or trying to sing for anyone to listen to or to make records gave her the chills. And yet she was clearly intrigued. Carrie wrote, I don't want to do any bragging, but I can say this. In big families, there are always some of the family who have better and truer voices than others. I was one of the family who had the gift, and both father and mother had it too. I know hundreds of tunes. I have no idea how many. She knew many songs, it's true, but she didn't know all the words. And in many cases, neither did she know the titles, often naming a song based on its first line. In some cases, the same song might go by two different titles, which can be quite maddening to me as it makes cataloging the songs quite difficult. He responds quickly, Your letter was one of the most charming and informative I have ever had the pleasure of reading. Perhaps it would not be too much trouble for you to write down whatever words of the songs you know you can remember and to send letters to your relatives to get those words you cannot recall yourself. You are the kind of person that the poor folklorist travels many weary miles to spend an evening with. And when he finds you, he says, 
Your tunes and your style of singing are so much more important than any conventional melodiousness. Sing to me the way you might sing to one of your grandchildren so that I, too, may understand through you something of what it was to hear the ballads in the old days. He tells her her songs will be studied with reverence and care by a few people who know how much the old tunes mean. He encourages her to keep writing him because he's very interested, and he guarantees she won't have cold chills once they begin talking about the old songs in person. I will be very glad if any of my old songs will help the present generation to understand something of what those old songs meant to our ancestors, Carrie responded. In February 1941, she said she's been collecting her songs for about three years. It's quite the rage with some of the music clubs. She became a member of the Annie Louise Carey Music Club, a unit of the National Federation of Music Clubs. Miss Nellie McCann, the president of the club, asked Carrie to sing her songs into a recording machine. But Carrie is cautious. She's afraid to share certain songs for fear others would think her rough and unladylike and says, There is many a little ditty with catchy tunes that I fear they will never hear. Anxious to read every songbook she can get her hands on, she borrowed several from Miss McCann, and others she found in her local library. Her searching was all about finding songs that unlocked a memory of what her parents had sung, a phrase or a bit of melody. She's familiar with the book The Minstrelsy of Maine and looks for verses or plays the tunes on her fiddle, though none of them are the same as what her family sang. I discovered the same thing when I researched Carrie's songs. While many of the titles are the same as in other maritime collections, the Spinney's melodies were entirely different, and according to Carrie exactly the way their ancestors sang them. In a letter to Cousin Bessie, dated January 13, 1941, some of the songs written down in those books are so mangled, they don't sound right. And the tunes, most of them, sound like Andy Irvin's tunes. Oh, Bessie, I will never forget what that sounded like. They're remembering the Irvin family again, whose singing was difficult to endure. She goes on to say, there is no one around here who knows or can even make an attempt to sing the old songs, and I surely have a great harvest of them, even if I do want more. But of all the hundreds of songs she has read in books, there are several that she has found no trace of only as she has heard them sung in her own family. One example, The Jealous Brother, a song her brother Lewis sang, She Can't Find Anywhere, and Neither Could I. Referring to Helen Creighton's Songs and Ballads of Nova Scotia, she tells Bessie, Someone went down there prowling around the coast and picked up a lot of the old, old songs, and among them, the one I especially wanted, so I am all right. The song she was seeking was Prentice Boy, one of her mother's grandmother's songs. A brief correspondence between Carrie and Helen Creighton ensued in November 1941, likely initiated by Carrie. Creighton sent Carrie a copy of that very collection, Songs and Ballads of Nova Scotia, and Carrie wrote to thank her for her generosity. She told Creighton that she'd asked Alan Lomax if he ever saw anyone who knew as many songs as she, and he said he knew one man in Texas who knew as many songs, if not more, but he sang them all to the same tune. Steadily and diligently, she works on her book of songs, a little every day, she said. She mentioned a song her brother recalled their father singing, a rather gruesome shipwreck tale, but perfectly true, put to a tune that probably was taken from a much older song. 
Carrie included two shipwreck songs in her collection, Loss of the Dew Dispatch and The Loss of the New Columbia, but only the first took place in Nova Scotian waters, and as a young man, George Spinney knew two or three of the survivors. She confessed to Lomax that she never cared to dance or even try. She learned to play fiddle by ear, but is trying to become a violinist and join an orchestra, but she is having an awful time of it. When she recognized a song Lomax played on his broadcast, as one her brother Anson learned in a lumber camp, she wrote, I seized my violin and began to play that tune. I have a full-length mirror in the room, and happening to turn, I saw an old woman with a fiddle under her chin, bent half-double, swaying from side to side and trotting one foot. And like the old woman who went to market, I said, Can this be I? I put away my violin and laughed and laughed. I had hoped I was a violinist, but I guess I will always be just a fiddler. She must be planning to go to Washington, D.C., because she says, I think from the tone of your letter that I can talk to you and sing to you as freely as I could, my own big boy. I am glad if my gift for tunes is to be of use to someone. In one long letter, she tells Lomax all about her family's singing history, the songs that came from her great-grandparents from Ireland and Wales, to the ones learned at the public house her great-grandfather built along the rough old path that once joined Chester with Windsor. She goes on and on for pages, then says... I know that you have made a study of folk music, and know more than I will ever know, but I am telling you something of real folks, and songs of real folks. They are not only folk songs, but the songs of my folks. There's a sense in these letters that in him she's found a deep kinship. She wrote, It's so good to find someone who really likes the old songs. In her next letter, she apologizes for her previous one. I hope you will pardon a lonely, childish, garrulous old woman for letting loose such a flood of personal history. It seems so good to find someone who really liked the old songs that for a moment I did not stop to remember that we are really strangers. Lomax replied that her letters have a special place in the archive's collection as they provide valuable evidence on the singing habits of the early days. She says when she comes to Washington, D.C., she will have about a hundred songs copied and is on track for more and promises to bring her book with her. She adds that the only thing young about her is her love of music and that she has a sense of humor and a cheerful disposition. Lomax reassured her that he is very interested in her book of songs. Don't fail to appear with your book under your arm. Of course we want to see it. She wishes Ethel could go with her, but she is busy singing lullabies to her new baby. She talks about how Bertha and Joe are racking their brains, reconstructing verses to the old songs. In April of 1941, at age 62, Carrie traveled by train to Washington, D.C. Just four short months had passed since her first correspondence with Lomax. She said she's feeling modest and a bit shy about lifting up her voice in song, but says, I will be just myself and will do my best, shivers or no shivers. And she pulled it off very well. At the Library of Congress, she was greeted by Ellen Lomax and over several days recorded more than 50 songs. To be in the nation's capital, in the same room with a highly respected song collector, singing her songs into a microphone and assuring their preservation, it must have been exhilarating for her. She is just herself, with her lilting voice and her bubbly character. She was introduced to Sidney Robertson Cowell during this session. 
In subsequent letters, she thanks Lomax and Mrs. Robertson more than once for their kindness in entertaining her. Within a few weeks, Robertson Cowell recorded Carrie independently from Lomax, capturing 21 songs and 15 fiddle tunes. I learned this of my father when I was a very small child. Uh, all these songs he learned when he was a young man, a jolly soldier. Tis all a jolly soldier that lately came from war. He loved a young damsel, a damsel so fair. Her fortune was so great it could scarcely be told. And she loved the jolly soldier because he was so bold. <clears throat> oh, then said the lady, I fain would be your wife. But my father, he is cruel and he'd surely end my life. He drew out his sword and pistol, and he hung them by his side, and he swore that he would marry her, let what would betide. So they went, and they got married as they were coming home. They met her old father with seven armed men. Let us flee, cried the lady, or we both will be slain. Feared nothing, dear charmer, the soldier said again. Then up came the old man, and unto her did say, It's for your disobedience to me this very day. Since you've been so mean as to be a soldier's wife, Down in this lonely valley I will surely end your life. Oh, then said the soldier, I do not like your prattle, For although I am a bridegroom, I am well prepared for battle. He drew out his sword and pistol, and he caused them for to rattle. The lady held the horse while the soldier fought the battle. The first one he came to, he run him through a mane. The second one he came to, he served him the same. Let us flee, cried the rest, or we all will be slain. Fight on, my brave soldier, the lady said again. Stay your hand, cried the old man, you make my blood run cold. And you shall have my daughter and five thousand pounds in gold. Fight on, cried the lady, for my fortune is too small. Stay your hand, cried the old man, and you shall have it all. So he took them both home, and he made them his heirs. It was not for love, but it was from dread and fear. For well, there never was a soldier ever carried a gun who would ever flinch or budge an inch till the battle he had won. So don't despise a soldier because he is poor. He's happy on the battlefield as at the barrack door. For they are the lads to be jovial, brisk, and free, and they'll fight for the pretty girls for rights and liberty. Upon her return to Gorham, she wrote to Lomax, I need advice. Tell me what can be done. I like you, Alan. You are one of my own kind, and we understand about the old songs, and working with you and with dear Mrs. Robertson was real fun. Lomax tells her it's important for her to continue her work in recalling the old songs and to write out simple introductions to three or four songs, telling what she knows about them or have learned through family. Leave out everything you've gotten from books, he says. He asks her to mail them to him to be copied. In mid-June, she writes to him, saying her trip to Washington feels like a dream. 
He responds to her by saying, Your visit to Washington was definitely not a dream. It resulted in about ten of the most valuable records that the archive possesses, and that he very much appreciated her contribution. And also, how important it is for us that you continue your work in recalling the old songs. Remember always that I would rather have you and your family's verses unadulterated than verses from printed sources. There's a wide gap in what was Carey's ordinary flurry of letter writing in the summer of 1941. The reason is revealed through a letter I received from her grandson, Roy, who remembers his visit to his grandparents' home that summer, where he played with his cousin John, Gertrude's son, and milked cows, slopped pigs, fed chickens, collected eggs, and worked with his grandfather in his garden, weeding with a hoe and tending all the crops. He recalled haying season and being allowed to drive the tractor, and how he marveled at their complete self-sufficiency that came from the crops they grew and the livestock they kept. Decades later, the memory of that summer was still alive in him. In the fall of 1941, the letter writing picks up again, with Carrie reporting on her health ailments, her chronic respiratory infections, and long periods of bed rest. In October, she tells Lomax she would like to ask him some questions in hopes he will try to understand and answer them, quote, just as though you were my sure enough nephew and I truly were your Aunt Carrie, end quote. She explains she heard a woman from Portland sing a couple folk songs and said, her voice is a good one and she sang well, but Ellen, that is not the way those old songs should be sung. A good singer has to be a natural-born singer and a really good singer puts real feeling into his singing because he really feels it. If the music is not in a person, you can't get the music out of him, not the kind that stirs you to the very deeps and either saddens you or sets your feet tapping and makes you feel that you are 16 instead of 60. A person either has that power to stir others by the music inside him, or he hasn't, and no number of music lessons will give it to him. What I want you to tell me, Alan, is this. Is there any way that I could have my book of songs published and have the tunes with the songs as they are instead of the way some high-toned ballad singer thinks they ought to be? It's a valid request and a very real concern that her songs won't be preserved accurately as she knows them. Little does she know, Providence is about to intervene. She is devoted to the idea of having these songs published. She's seen what's out there on library shelves and in the Library of Congress, and she thinks her family songs are worthy of publishing. I have no great dreams of fame and fortune, she writes to Lomax, but I honestly think that the people who could collect as many songs as I have, all of them sung by relatives and friends right in my own home, are few and far between. And again, I need advice. Tell me what can be done. She's hoping he will spearhead a plan for her collection and see it through to publication. His next letter is addressed to Aunt Carrie. It's short, asking her again to write out simple introductions to a few songs. Then he will let her know what he thinks about the possibilities for a published book. She writes back that she is very ill with high blood pressure and has to lay the songs aside, but is grateful for the wonderful experience in Washington. Two days later, she writes again, saying she feels much better and is at it again. She spent weeks recalling the songs with her sister Bertha, who told her the songs their parents knew before they knew each other were worded slightly differently but always to the same tune. 
Four days later, she writes in great detail her health ailments with asthma, high blood pressure, her trips to the hospital, the sleeping pills they gave her that caused depression, and an inferiority complex you couldn't cut with a battle axe. But the headaches are subsiding, and she is her old, cheerful self again. He responded just a few days later with, Your records, manuscript, songs, and letters about the songs are among the most precious things in our collection, and nothing would please me more than to see them reach publication. He asks her to mail them to him to be copied, so that her work is safeguarded against loss by being preserved in more than one place. She responds with assurance that while she wants him to see all the songs, she won't mail them for fear they'll be lost in the mail. And she adds, Though collecting these songs has been a labor of love, it represents many hours of painstaking labor over a long period of years. There's a bit of a demanding tone as this letter progresses. She's wanting to know very definitively what, if anything, is going to be done, how it is going to be done, and above all, what is it going to cost? He responds that he is writing a letter that day to a music publisher in New York to see if he would be interested in bringing out a group of her songs, but that he won't have as much time as he would like to assist in the project, as he's going to South America on a recording trip. Publishing a book was not an easy task in those days, a situation not likely to improve while the world was still at war overseas. In a letter sent to Lomax in December 1941, she wrote, My hopes for a published book of my songs does not look promising, but I am so enthusiastic about the old family songs that I keep right on trying to get more. She knit him a pair of gloves for Christmas and a warning to his wife to watch out for clothes moths. He responds with these kind words. I will listen to all the tunes that are knitted in the stitches of my mittens and remember what wonderful people make up the human race, particularly this section of it that sings old ballads and that unit of the section that inhabits Gorham, Maine and is known by the name of Grover. Elizabeth and I have decided to nominate you honorary aunt of the Lomax family. This is our small Christmas present to you. He says that a publisher he's written to has expressed interest in her material and that over the holidays some of her songs will be transcribed, though there's no existing evidence to indicate that ever took place. Later that month, she responds, I intend to get as many of the old songs as I can before I am called to my father's, and that she feels happier and more at home at the Library of Congress right in the nation's capital than in the sitting room of her own neighbor. She ought to have 200 songs, all sung by her own people with the original tunes when she returns the following spring to the Library of Congress, unless bombs begin to fly, she says. In one of her recordings at the Library of Congress, the distinctive whir of prop planes can be heard overhead. She asks Lomax if he thinks it worthwhile to include a rather gruesome murder song written about a real murder in the Lumberwoods near Bethel a hundred years before. It is as long as the moral law, but my brother used to sing it, she said. It's entitled The Tragedy Song, and she did include it in her songbook. There is great interest in folk songs and folk music at this time in the country. People are crazy about them, she writes to Bessie. She read in a Nova Scotia paper they are trying to revive the singing of the old songs there. She continues to try to finish out the songs with all the verses she can squeeze from her relatives back at Sunken Lake. As she put it on New Year's Eve, 1941, I have some nets out among relatives and hope to catch a few more fish. 
Project is gone a roving with troubles on his mind for the leaving of his country and his darling girl behind. Oh, lay my lily, oh, lay my lily, oh. She went into a tailor shop and dressed in men's array, and she went on board of a man of war to wear her life away. Oh, lay my lily. Then up steps the old man, and I'm to heard it say, Oh, you look just like my daughter, who will lately run away. Oh, lay, my lily, oh, lay, my lily, oh. Oh, I am not your daughter, and neither do I know, For my home is in the highlands, and they call me Jack Monroe. Oh, lay, my lily, oh, lay, my lily, oh. Oh, after the battle was over, she took a circle round, And among the dead and wounded, her darling boy she found. Oh, lay, my lily, oh, lay, my lily, oh. She took him in her arms, and she carried him to the town. And she sent for London doctors to heal his blood bleeding wounds. Oh, lay my lily, oh, lay my lily, oh. Word of her trip to Washington, D.C. must have spread in this small town. She's come to the attention of Dr. George Farnsworth, a trustee of Gould Academy, the high school Carrie attended years before. He enlists the help of the head of the music department at Gould, a talented woman named Anne Griggs. In the foreword to A Heritage of Songs, Griggs wrote, Dr. George B. Farnsworth wrote me asking if I would be interested in meeting Mrs. Grover. He said she knew a large number of folk songs which he thought worth recording. Mrs. Grover's songs include many that have never been published, and those which can be found in other collections are sung to tunes whose plaintive beauty excels other settings with which I have compared them. Many of the melodies are based on ancient Greek modes. Dr. Farnsworth made arrangements for Carrie to be housed in a dorm at Gould for a week in April of 1942, during which time she recorded about 150 songs for Anne Griggs. It is a long week for her and an even lengthier process. A letter to Cousin Bessie written during that week states she sits like patience on a monument, waiting for the music teacher to fit her in whenever she has time. Using these recordings, Griggs began transcribing each song, meticulous in her notation. For more than a year, Carrie was asked to return to Gould numerous times for Griggs to notate the little quirks inherent in Carrie's singing style, one she can't seem to detect from the recording. Eventually, Griggs painstakingly completes a transcription of 140 songs, the entire contents of A Heritage of Songs, and remarks on how her belief in their value grew as she worked. Carrie's wish has been answered in having her tunes transcribed precisely the way they were sung. Carrie said she sang all of her oldest and best songs at the Academy, and that she and Griggs are the best of friends. Carrie must have been ecstatic. Her belief that her song collection will be published has been strengthened, as Gould Academy is now working on her behalf. I don't believe there will be another book anything like it on the face of this earth, she wrote to Bessie. And that's still true. There really isn't. She is so proud of her old songs, 
What means the most to her is how pleased her parents would be if they knew of her efforts to preserve them. She's devoted to her task. I am so interested in the old songs that when I get started, I don't know when to stop. I've had the same feeling every time I sit down to work on my Carrie Grover project. Carrie is really busy. Busy as a hen with one chicken, as she puts it. She's beseeching the help of anyone back at Sunken Lake who can recall the verses to her tunes. She's written to old Frank Spinney and his children, to a cousin on her grandmother's side. She's badgered her siblings and written continuously to cousin Bessie and her husband John. To Bessie, she sent $5 in gratitude for her help and to offset her postage costs, saying it is no use to try to get them anywhere except from her own family and that she herself has spent a young fortune on postage stamps. She says, Somehow my head seems to have tunes packed in it, layer on layer, and I have spells of remembering different ones. This was her unrelenting process for gathering all the songs she could remember having heard as a child. Spells of recall, letter upon letter to aging relatives and their children, and pumping siblings for all the bits and pieces they could possibly recall. She learns of a woman in England who was collecting old hymns and had plans to send her Uncle Jimmy Pitt's hymn. She hears is an old singer who sings the old songs of in Bethel, and another in Newry, and intends to go see them. Her beloved brother Anson, the older brother who could outsing anyone, he had so many songs, promised to sing for her Little Gypsy Maid, one he'd learned from Aunt Mary, their father's sister. Every time Carrie saw him, he'd say, next time, next time he would sing it to add to her collection. He called Carrie his old faithful, so faithful to the music she was. He died of cancer in 1940 without ever having sung it to her, and there is no record of it. It's sad to think how many songs were lost with the passing of those who sang them. Carrie's older sister, Sarah, sang to her The Three-Cornered Cupboard, as Carrie had never heard it sung in its entirety. It's a story of a woman who hides her lover in a cupboard behind the door when her husband returns home unexpectedly. But Carrie finds it racy and remarked to Bessie, Folk songs or no folk songs, I would not want to put it in a book of songs that I left behind me. And she does not include it in the songs she recorded for Anne Griggs. But she does record it for Alan Lomax and a second time for Eloise Hubbard Linscott. Tis of a bold trooper in London did dwell, he had a fair lady and he loved her right well. For wit and for beauty few could her excel, but she was a wife of a trooper, right fall to the all, right fall to the all, right fall to the all did all day. There was a bold tailor resided close by, and on this fair lady he did cast an eye. He swore he would have her or else he would die Because she was such a beauty Right fall to the all Right fall to the all Right fall to the all Did all day He went for to see her one cold winter's night He called her his darling, his own heart's delight Five guineas in gold I will give you this night I know that your husband's on duty Right fall to the all Right fall to the all, right fall to the all, did all day. Oh, Taylor, oh, Taylor, now you have guessed right. I own that my husband's on duty tonight. But if he should good come home, he would give us a fright. Beware that my husband's a trooper. Right fall to the all, right fall to the all, right fall to the all, did all day. 
The trooper came home in the dead of the night. There lay, lay the bow tailor in bed with his wife. Oh, hide me, oh, hide me, the poor tailor cries. I hear the bold steps of the trooper, right fall to the all, right fall to the all, right fall to the all, to the all day. There's a three-cornered cupboard behind the room door. If you get into this, you'll be safe and secure. I'll put on my slippers and open the door and let in my husband, the trooper, right fall to the all, right fall to the all, right fall to the all, to the all day. She put on her slippers and tripped down the stairs with kisses and hugs for to meet him there. For hugs and for kisses, now I do not care, but build me a fire, says the trooper, right fall to the all, right fall to the all, right fall to the all, to the all day. To build you a fire, now I have no stuff, but come to your bed and you'll be warm enough. There's a three-cornered cupboard behind the room door, and I'll burn it this night, says the trooper, right fall to the all, right fall to the all, right fall to the all, to the all day. Oh, husband, oh, husband, grant me my desire, the three-cornered cupboard's too good for the fire. Besides a gamecock that I do much admire, I'll see your gamecocks as a trooper, right fall to the all, right fall to the all, right fall to the all, to the all day. He went to the cupboard and opened the door. There lay the bull tailor, all safe and secure. He took him by the heels, dragged him out on the floor. And is this your gamecocks? Is a trooper? Right fall to the all, right fall to the all, right fall to the all, to the all day. He put his hand in his pocket and pulled out his shears. And close to his head, he cut both of his ears. So far his night's lodging he paid very dear, as away went the poor Crawford tailor, right fall to the all, right fall to the all, right fall to the all, to the all day. Gee, well. Is that awful? <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty terrible. I never heard it, with it, I've heard it before, but never was it cutting his ears off. In October of 42, she wrote to Bessie. You know, people who have been trying to study into what they call folk songs have just gone mad about the old songs such as our folks sang. The New England Federation of Music Clubs has a meeting in Boston. It's some kind of a jamboree, she said, and she's been asked by the Annie Louise Carey Club to represent the state of Maine and to sing and talk about her old songs. They have no one who can sing the old-fashioned songs in the old-fashioned way. They call me a real folk singer. Can you beat that? She does indeed attend the New England Folklore Festival in Boston in the fall of 1942. She spoke about song singing in the days before phonographs and radio and sang Till It Is Clear Day, passed down from her maternal great-grandparents. She had stage fright and wrote, I realized that the people who liked those old songs were really enjoying mine, and that gave me courage. Upon her return home from Boston, she began corresponding with folklorist and song collector Eloise Hubbard Linscott, whom she probably met while in Boston. The two shared a special bond, as Linscott's publication, Folk Songs of Old New England, was her own family's song collection. More than a year after Carrie first met and worked alongside Anne Griggs at Gould Academy, she explained to Linscott, the tunes must be written by the lady who has charge of the music department, and no one else. I'm going now to help her get in the little quirks and twists that she can't quite manage from hearing the records. I will take my violin, too, and hope we will get along all right. 
She is very musical, a lovely lady to work with, and very anxious to get the tunes just right. You see, a great many of my tunes are so old that they have to be written in the old modes. Anne Griggs is a dream come true for Carrie, someone who not only recognized the worth of this body of music, but who also had the musical prowess necessary to create such precise notations. She says, I hope they will be written before I die of old age, but sometimes I have my doubts. To Bessie, in March 1943, she says, It means a lot to history to get those old songs together that the older people used to sing, for there are few people left now who know them. I've seen some of them in books so mixed up and different from what our folks sang that I could not make heads or tails of them. And, she says, I can honestly say that in almost every case, our tunes and our words are better than the ones I have heard or seen printed of the same songs. I couldn't agree with her more. But the old, old ones sung by her grandparents she cannot find any trace of except from her own people. And one by one, those people are passing away. Her brothers Anson, Joe, and Louis, sister Sarah, cousins in Sunken Lake, and even old Uncle Frank all contributed memories and verses before they passed on. You see, I love the old songs for the sake of the ones who sang them, Carrie wrote in November of 1942. She says that before she was born, a nephew of her mother's worked for her father at the sawmill and was full of songs. So Carrie bombarded his children with letters, and his grandchildren as well, but no one seemed to know any of them. She is right. The songs are dying, lost to the wind as no one remembers them or sings them anymore. Carrie said, My generation is going fast, and with my generation, I fear that most of our old songs will go too. I am anxious to try to save as many of them as I can. Carrie continued imploring Bessie to do all she can to find the words to The Old Beggar Man, A Do to Nova Scotia, The Pride of Kildare, Lovely Flora and Sweet Erin Gobra, and Johnny Doyle. Ultimately, the collection would have been sorely lacking without the help of her sister Bertha, the wordsmith of the family, who supplied many, many verses she retrieved from the depths of her own recollections, including the words to Johnny Bull. Carrie stated more than once that while she could remember all the tunes, it was Bertha who knew all the words. When I was a young man, I lived on the common, as brisk as a bee, I could jump like a salmon. But still, for all that, I ne'er could be easy, till I had enlisted with Corporal Casey, down dairy, down day. Down dairy, down dairy, right whack, Father Eddie, down dairy, down day. When I had enlisted as a grenadier soldier, two brogues on me feet and a gun on me shoulder. All right about whale, a sergeant, he said to me, Darn him, lay on him, cries Corporal Casey, down derry, down day. Oh, down derry, down derry, right whack, father, Eddie, down derry, down day. Now it chanced for to happen, not very long after, on Waterloo Field there was a great slaughter. A ball passed me by, both slowly and easy, and took off the head of poor Corporal Casey, down derry, down day. Oh, down derry, down derry, right whack, father, Eddie, down derry, down day. The ongoing obstacle for Carrie was her health. Plagued by respiratory illness and chronic asthma attacks, with long periods recovering from bad colds and bronchitis, she was often laid up for weeks. Yet the silver lining was the time it afforded her to continue on with her work. 
In early winter, she wrote to Lynn Scott, I am no good to king or country, so I'm trying to amuse myself hunting up some more old songs. I would like to have something interesting to do when I have to sit down, and that's why I've got so much pleasure out of the old songs. She's got scraps of verses, but expressed worry that she wouldn't be well enough to finish. If anything should happen to me, I want you to have all my scraps with my own tunes, she tells Lynn Scott. On one particular day, she is trying to get the verses to Jolly Roving Tar, a song her mother sang, and though she recorded it for Lynn Scott, there are holes where she hasn't got the words. In another letter she wrote, Since I have read every songbook I could get my hands on, I have found old songs that Father had hoped to find the greater part of his life, songs he had heard sung when he was a young man at sea. Also in the same letter, in reference to a song Donald Monroe, she wrote, Don't think that I am in the habit of adding words to songs. Brother Anson wanted so much to find it, and in order to put in the parts of verses he knew, I had to fix it a little. Alan Lomax charged me not to change words, but to sing them just as I heard them. It seems much of her time wasn't spent on tunes so much as securing the verses to those tunes. By January, she was diagnosed with pneumonia and a strained heart. Still, she pressed on with her letter writing and is optimistic that she will soon crawl out of the feathers, though she says she came very close to passing on to the happy hunting grounds, as she put it. The dear old tunes that so few people know except myself could not be written if I was not here to see about it gave me an incentive to fight. So praise the Lord and pass the ammunition. In spite of setbacks, Carrie remained unsinkable. In reading her letter, she is continuously rebounding, not letting the setbacks derail her nor dampen her spirits. I am neither a coward nor a quitter, and I'm going to make the fight of my life, she wrote, in fierce determination to regain her health and get on with her collecting. A doctor who came in to check on her said, It's hard to kill an old fiddler. She laughed at that and replied, A soul that is full of music never grows old. She asked Lynn Scott if she will be going to the Folk Festival in Philadelphia, scheduled for May of 1943. Carrie attended this event, and while she was pleased to have been put on the program, she admitted to feeling nervous and fearful of singing to a large group of people. Come summer of 1943, Carrie was coaxing Lynn Scott to work on a second songbook with her. She wrote, if you feel it would be worthwhile to have me go in with you, I think I could supply the tunes and words of enough song so that together we could make a good book. This would be separate from the book of family songs she's creating with Griggs. Carrie says, I'm going to keep well or bust till we have enough songs for a book. It seems the two are planning to meet in person, for Carrie says, If I get strong enough, I may be able to get to your place. Carrie invited Lynn Scott to come and stay with her in Gorham in October of 1943 to record more songs, but fearing the entire music club would be at her doorstep if they learned Eloise Hubbard Lynn Scott were there, she wrote, I want you all to myself, and this is quite a musical place, and if I let anyone know you were coming, we wouldn't get a chance to be together at all. I do not belong to the 400, or at least I never did till they found out I had a collection of old songs. I would not want you to come and go and say nothing to anyone about it, but I do want my innings first. She included a word about her husband, Almond Roy, who had begun a descent into dementia. My poor old husband is a little odd and is very, very forgetful, and he cannot be trusted with the fires. All the same, he is a good old chap. 
Then Scott made the trip to Carrie's home, and they evidently found ample time to record 43 songs and more than 30 fiddle tunes that fall of 1943. Though the physical act of playing fiddle proved very fatiguing to Carrie, it resulted in the largest batch of fiddle recordings we have. In June of 1944, she says to Lynn Scott that her strength wanes and that she has been struggling since Christmas with asthma, but wants to know the name of her recording machine so she can see if she can buy one locally. She's become interested in recording elderly people who knew the old songs, though many of the places still don't have electricity. Maybe she is fancying herself as a song collector, admiring those she's become acquainted with. Throughout long bouts of illness that kept her bedridden for weeks at a time, Carrie began writing all she could remember from her childhood. With the help of Gertrude as typist, Carrie recalled every memory she had of her early life in Sunken Lake. What they ate for breakfast and supper, who she played with, who came and went from their home, of tiffs among siblings and being disciplined by parents, their sheep and farm, making soap and dyeing wool and washing clothes by the lakeside, the whir of the spinning wheel and the clicking of her mother's needles as she sang before the fire, how her father would say, let me light me pipe, before responding to a probing question. It's a beautiful depiction of their way of life. I am grateful for this document, given to me by two kind women at Sunken Lake, as much of the content of these podcasts has been pulled directly from this document, as well as a similar one written by Ethel entitled, Your Folks and Mine plus countless bits and pieces Carrie scribbled on backs of envelopes or wrote longhand on notebook paper, plus my own piles of notes, random tidbits of information that slowly trickled in over the years, rich sources, all of them, windows into their lives, a living history of these people and their songs. The people of the Black River region, where Sunken Lake is located, have done a marvelous work in preserving their history and for several years hosted an annual event the Carrie Spinney Grover Day. Time moved on. Several years passed and still no word of publication from Gould Academy. In September of 1946, she and her husband celebrated their 50th wedding anniversary. A black and white photo shows Carrie in a long, dark dress and lace collar with her fiddle beneath her chin. This picture appears in the first few pages of A Heritage of Songs, and for many years it was the only one I had of her. Carrie's grandchildren were also there, two of them whom I knew, Callie, who was six, and Roy, age 15 at that time. I have many more photos now, thanks to Callie and Roy, and other family members in Nova Scotia. In April of 1947, Carrie received a telegram from Duncan Emrick from the music division of the Archive of American Folk Song, requesting the use of three songs she'd recorded with Alan Lomax. The Loss of the New Columbia, The Wild Barbary, and The Lowlands of Holland. They were to be included on an album, and she was paid $30. She responded to say her songs were being prepared for publication, indicating her hopefulness, but it's been four years now. In her next letter to Mr. Emmerich, she clarified her situation with the songs Gould was preparing. About my book of songs, there is very little I can tell you. About five years ago, I recorded about 150 songs at Gould Academy. The head of the music department was to write the music, 
and in fact she has charge of the whole thing, and I feel that I have nothing to say about it. I have told so many lies already, thinking that I was telling the truth, that I think the less I say the better. If the book should be published before I die, I promise to let you know. I am now at work on another collection, and that one is mine. She had all the while been working on a second collection of songs. Linscott didn't bite at Carrie's suggestion of putting out a book together, but Carrie, being Carrie, plowed ahead and enlisted the help of her musical friend and fiddle teacher, Fred Hill. This is where that little handwritten book of notation comes into play, the one Roy gave me when I first met him. Most likely it was Fred Hill and not Carrie who was jotting down melody lines into this little booklet numbering each one for a total of 67, all with at least one verse printed beneath the notes. It appeared to be a rough draft of sorts. It's an absolute relic. The pages are thin, the corners worn. One page had torn from the binding, so Carrie, presumably, attached it with a straight pin that has remained in place for 80 years now. Carrie continued to be recognized for her songs in historical authority and folk music, and was asked to speak at the annual convention of the Maine Federation of Music Clubs in Bangor, Maine, in June 1947. I have the original paper she read from, entitled Musical Memories of Childhood, and in it she said that just this winter she'd found two of her father's songs written down the last time he visited Nova Scotia, at least 40 years earlier. They were in a trunk belonging to a brother who'd been dead 20 years already. A pamphlet from this event lists Carrie's name and the piece she sang, The Bold Fisherman. Carrie lost her husband, Almond Roy, the following spring, April 1948. She moved from the West Gorham home to her second home in the heart of the village of Gorham. The family home was sold, and daughter Gertrude moved in with her mother, having recently been widowed herself. Her daughters were both spurring her on to continue with her work. Gertrude was typing all of Carrie's stories, and Ethel was writing her own short memoir, Your Folks and Mine. They were all caught up in the history of their family and striving for the preservation of the music and the stories that had survived generations. In January of 1950, age 71, Carrie wrote again to Duncan Emmerich, reminding him that she was the person who made records for Ellen Lomax and had recorded her songs at Gould Academy. This is what she wrote. The head of the music department prepared them for publication and, after many disappointments, thought she had found a publisher only to find, after they had kept the songs for a long time, that they could not be accepted because they could not be classed under the head of research, as they did not name other sources where the songs could be found. She goes on to say that she never made any pretensions of her songs being anything other than a collection of family songs handed down through three and four generations at least, and with the same tunes. Carrie continued, The songs I sang for the Academy are of course no longer in my hands, but for several years I've been working on another project, for it is a subject in which I am deeply interested. She also mentioned she's writing short anecdotes to accompany these songs. These little stories, she said, should prove not only interesting but instructive to those who have a real interest in the old folk songs. She says she has bought a recorder and is intending to record all her songs and fiddle tunes. She told Emmerich that her latest collection will include a section of fiddle tunes and only those she's heard played by her oldest brother, 
which he had learned from their grandmother, Margaret Hutchinson Long. Notice how she is so strict in allowing only the songs sung or played within her own family. She is adhering to Lomax's command to not include anything from any other sources. She continued to Emmerich, I honestly believe that in this collection of songs and tunes I have done a work that no one else could do. For every song and every tune in the collection I have heard played or sung by some member of my own family. If I do not lose my courage, I think that the work could be finished by the spring of 1950. Surely there must be a publisher somewhere. And please give me a word of encouragement and advice, as I have no time to lose. I am old and sick. Emmerich responded in February of 1950. It has been my recent experience that publishers are increasingly hesitant to publish specialized collections of folk music since, as commercial publishers, they do not see an adequate return for their investment. On the other hand, this should not discourage you. The work that you are doing is a valuable one. There are only a very few full collections made by individuals showing the traditional songs which have come down in one family. From a scholarly point of view, this is a most important study. The letters end there, and there's no other word of the manuscript she and Fred Hill are collaborating on. Though the date is unclear, sometime in the early 1950s, a full decade after meeting Anne Griggs, Gould Academy made good on their promise to some degree. With no success in finding a publisher, they mimeographed all of Griggs' sheet music and the verses to 140 of Carey's songs and set them into a soft-covered spiral binding and entitled it A Heritage of Songs. Carey was given about a dozen copies, and Gould retained a few for their own purposes. It wasn't the scale she'd envisioned, but she must have been pleased at having something to pass down to the next generation. Around 1953, an article appeared in the local newspaper with a picture of Carey and the title Carey Grover, Folk Singer. It speaks of this recent publication. In 1952... Her daughter Ethel died, and two years later, she lost Gertrude as well. It was in 1954 when her son Anson, her only surviving child, traveled to Gorham to collect his mother and take her to live at his home in Berwyn, Pennsylvania. Her grandson Roy was in college at the time but came home to his grandmother. He remembers her playing her fiddle. Before she left Gorham, Carrie handed the manuscript over to Fred Hill, and told him to do with it as he wished. He apparently at some point gave it to the Annie Louise Carey Music Club. He commented in a letter to them, he never heard of a person who knew so many songs. Knowing nothing at all of this manuscript, in 2015 I sent an email to the current president of this music club, asking if they had any information on Carrie Grover, as I knew she had been an active member years before. I received word that they'd recently vacated the building the club had gathered in for over a hundred years and put all they owned in boxes, but if they came across anything, they'd be sure to let me know. Six months later, I received another email. They'd found some songs and stories, and would I like to have them sent to me? Within a week, a large floppy envelope was on my doorstep when I arrived home from work one soggy Seattle evening. What I pulled from that envelope astonishes me still. At first glance, a stack of loose, yellowed pages. Scotch tape to the top of each page was a strip of heavy cardstock with hand-drawn staff lines with key signatures and penciled-in notes. 
Beneath the notation were the verses Gertrude had typed, all the verses Carrie had tirelessly unearthed. On other pages were more of Carrie's childhood remembrances of her young musical life held in the net of a loving family. And there were more stories of ancestors, and in some cases, deeper clarification of stories I'd already collected. I was beyond stunned. I'd had no idea this even existed. She'd mentioned it just twice in her letters, and at that point, I hadn't gone carefully enough through all those hundreds of letters stacked in a box on my bookshelf. This was Carrie's complete and unpublished manuscript, totaling 72 songs. I remember sitting at my dining room table, turning each page, awed and transfixed. I was struck with the thought that Carrie had delivered this package directly to me. In my mind, the image of Carrie's hand reaching across six decades and 3,000 miles to deliver to mine her most cherished family songs, knowing I would be the one to carry them forward. I can shamelessly say that I wept in disbelief and sheer joy at what I held in my hands. It was an extraordinary find, as though I'd been rewarded for all my digging, just as Carrie had dug to reclaim all those songs. My own journey stained a similar hue. I named this unpublished collection The Main Manuscript. I can say with confidence that I believe I have every song she ever scribbled down or recorded— more than a hundred more than I'd started when I first found Heritage of Songs. Not all the songs written in her little book of notation made their way into the main manuscript. Perhaps Fred and Carrie weren't quite finished. A handful of songs in the main manuscript had already been included in A Heritage of Songs. Maybe she'd given up hope that Gould Academy would ever come through for her in publishing her collection. And since she wasn't able to access Grigg's transcriptions... The ones repeated in the main manuscript may have been songs she especially cherished and wished to impart to her grandchildren. She may have believed the only printed songs destined to survive would be those she personally had control of within this manuscript. I once told the good people at the American Folklife Center that in exchange for all they'd given me in support of the Cary Grover Project, I'd in turn give them anything I found, never imagining this. Carrie's original main manuscript is now in their safekeeping. On August 16, 1972, the headmaster of Gould Academy wrote to Joe Hickerson, the librarian at the Archive of Folk Song at the American Folklife Center, thanking him for his request for a copy of A Heritage of Songs. I had the good fortune of being introduced to Joe in the very early days of embarking on this project, and Joe set me on a sure path. That same year, 1972, Norwood Publications reproduced A Heritage of Songs into a hard-covered edition, of which there are few remaining in the world today. Carrie died on January 29, 1959, exactly 64 years ago today, as I'm polishing off the final episode of her life story that I will record in the morning. She was 79 years old. In a letter from 1950, she wrote, if I never have any other reward, the pleasure I have had in doing the work and the many happy memories the work has brought to mind is very much worthwhile. In her memoir, she wrote, Now the songs I've mentioned, if I should set out to name them all, I guess it would be an all-night's job. How I would give anything to sit up all night to listen. Listen.